Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Ross. And I am Gordon. Gordon, the last time we were together, you took us through the process about working to get out of a, a creative slump. Uh, yes, we did discuss various options for deslumping. Okay. By the way, that's a new word. Everybody send in a quarter <laughs> if you're going to use it, and you should. Well, Gordon, I've got a challenge for our listeners. Oh, dear. Well, I guess that's the end of this podcast. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but for those who choose to stick around, I do want to try it out. Okay. Why not? What are you thinking? Okay. Have you ever gone out to make photographs with intent? You go into a specific place, a go-to location, and only taken one camera with you. Uh, yeah, of course I have. I go to the bird migration area, the garden, uh, with some regularity, and with some regularity I carry one camera. Perfect. When you go there, do you ever go with only one lens? Almost never. I have bought the lenses, I spent the money, I own the lenses, and whatever my convoluted logic may be, I'm going to use those lenses. And surely, at least in my mind, that should enable me to get better images. Okay, fair enough. But could you? One camera, one lens, for an entire shoot. Could I do it? Truthfully, I don't know. But I probably have done it periodically unintentionally. I've carried multiple lenses, used one, and then blamed it on the lack of opportunity and never thought about it again. Fair enough. You're not alone. Uh, I've had that happen myself. I've gone out with, you know, two or three lenses and used only one. I've gone out with a bag with more than two or three lenses and used only one and had back pain. Lots of photographers find this to... Okay, let's take it a step further. If you're going to a place where you knew that there would be images worth making, and you only had one camera and one lens, could you limit yourself to a single focal length for all the images that you shoot? You give us a challenge uh, somewhat along those lines not that long ago. You said a single lens, single focal length, and then you spiced it up a bit by requesting that our choice should be something that we seldom used. So, yes, I have. The difference here, though, was that this was an exercise. Our expectations were that that was all that we were going to use. But it was not a shoot of any importance, and the fear of missing an image was not there. So, again, I don't know if I could. Mostly... I would use a zoom because of the flexibility. I agree that zooms are incredibly flexible and very, very convenient. And we've talked recently about 
going out with only one lens. You know, we talked about 28 to 300s and 14 to 150s and how useful those tools are. But let's say that you took that zoom lens. Could you, and would you agree to try, to use it set to a single focal length for the entire shoot? Even if that meant taping the zoom function so the lens couldn't zoom just for that shoot. I think I could do that. But I have to admit that the thought of doing that raises considerable angst, and I think it would probably in many photographers. It, what you're suggesting would make the zoom behave like a prime, but I would have more focal length options to pick before I taped it down. Absolutely. You definitely have more choices until you tape the zoom to prevent it from moving or changing focal lengths. And it would absolutely behave like a prime or fixed focal length lens. Okay, next question. When you go out to shoot, and I don't mean something random, I mean you're going out because you know there are good images out there. Do you ever come back with over 100 images? Well, you know that I do. And I've watched you and so do you. I absolutely have. But I've been thinking. I know, bad plan. But I've been thinking about back when I started doing photography as a creative process, not just taking snapshots. I had one camera, two lenses, a really nasty little flash. But I was shooting mostly black and white film back then. And so I took the camera, which had been my dad's Minolta SR3 that he gave to me, and a Minolta 35mm f1.7 lens. And that was all I carried with me. I was loading my own film cassettes at the time, being poor. Each roll was about 36 frames of ASA 400, which we would now call 400 ISO. And that's all I had. I am going to assume that you were processing the film uh, for yourself? I, I was, again, part of being poor. And then I would print contact sheets. You know, the grid view in Lightroom? It's kind of reminiscent of contact sheets. You've got a bunch of little light images from which you can choose which one you want to work on. Of course, you can't, in the day of a contact sheet, pop it up full size to see if it's any good. The only thing you could do is work with it. I was a ways away from my computer screen and the grid view was open. And it just sort of hit me that that grid view is kind of like a contact sheet, which I thought was interesting. Because when I was using contact sheets, I would take a look at it and see if any of the frames were worth making a print from. Now I would use a little magnifier that actually sat on the contact sheet. So probably not unlike zooming in. And at the time, 8x10 was a common paper size. So there was always going to be some cropping to fill the page. And as a sidebar, it's where I had to learn to shoot for a 5x4 aspect ratio when my camera was capturing 3 to 2. And I had to learn to do it because if I forgot, it was a real nuisance. Well, I understand that film is undergoing another resurgence. Are you suggesting that we all buy a film camera and start doing our own processing all over again? Well, I know folks are, and you can if you want. But I'm trying to keep things simpler and not have this exercise, this processing, incur any extra cost. 
One of the benefits of shooting film is that every frame had a dollar cost. Every shot was not effectively free. Back then, I didn't have a motor drive. That camera wasn't even capable of taking one. So I couldn't wind the film on fast enough for burst shots anyway. It was kind of a natural way to avoid overshooting. And the cost of each frame encouraged me to think more about what was happening with each shutter squeeze. I only had 36 frames. If I needed another roll, well, I was going to have to build another roll mm -hmm. and then have the chemistry to process it. I think I can see where you're going with this. So maybe it's time to stop wiggling the bait a bit and hit us with whatever you have up your sleeve. Okay. That's fair. So here's the challenge to any photographer who feels slumped or meh and has the courage to do it. First, pick a place where you know that you will find interesting things to photograph. I think of Pioneer Village or the Distillery District or downtown Toronto. Wildlife and birds are tougher because there's a lower probability of getting something unless you go to a zoo. But we've been places like the Distillery District, and there's always something to photograph. Mm -hmm. yep. We've both enjoyed Black Creek Pioneer Village, and I think there's a lot of places like that. Yep. You can pick a place, go, and know you're going to have something. The next step would be once you've picked the place and when you're going to go, choose one camera and one focal length to use and prepare yourself. You can take a flash if you wish, and you know me, I pack a flash before I pack the second lens. But I think it's more valid and even interesting if you don't use a flash. So keep it simple. Camera, lens, and nothing else but a bag to carry those two items in. Now here's where it gets challenging for really creative photographers. No tripods, clamps, levels, rails, lights, nothing else. One camera, one fixed focal length lens, and that could be a zoom taped off. Oh, and you have to have the camera in single shot mode. No bursting is allowed. Third, when you get to your site, accept that you've only got 36 frames available. You only brought one roll of film. However long you're going to be in your location, you only have 36 frames to shoot. You might find that that will cause you to spend more time walking around and doing some really active seeing before you make any images. This is a very good thing. When you find an image to make, do your composition entirely in the viewfinder. Yeah, we're going to be shooting digital, and we know that we could crop when we get home. But under the rules of this game, you're not allowed to. In fact, you're not allowed to do anything other than minor exposure adjustments and some basic sharpening because that's going to be done when you import the images into your software. You don't even have a choice about that. No changing of the skies, no masking, no filters, or any of the other tricks that get used regularly to try to turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. You and I have seen this. A math photograph 
process the hell out of it to try to make it look useful. Take your shots and make a collection, whatever editor you use, and look at your images, not full screen, but as a grid, like a contact sheet. Pick the ones that appeal to you, and you can develop them accordingly. And by the way, if you shoot 36 frames, don't expect that you're going to have 36 winners. No, nope, generally not. Well, that process sure negates a lot of the great functionality in my camera. But I can see how it would force me to do the hard work of photography. I expect that I will learn something about my normal approach if I take on this challenge. Well, one would hope so. The idea of any training exercise is that we're going to learn something. Probably we'll make some mistakes. And in making mistakes, we do learn how to get better. Many who have had the courage to do this have come back saying, man, I had no idea how much I overshot. And why have I been shooting so many images of exactly the same thing in the same place for no real value? You know, I photograph a flower, and instead of taking one, I take 15. And I haven't moved. It doesn't make sense. Others who have done this challenge have realized that they've become completely dependent on their post-processing skills and do most of their work there and not at the time of image creation. Okay. But in IT, we talk about garbage in, garbage out. You can't fix something that's badly broken. Now, whether this is a good or bad thing is a personal decision. But my opinion is that if the processing takes a lot of lipstick, the intelligent viewer, which includes you, will still recognize that there's a pig there. Another offshoot of this for me is that I, I would have to rethink the process of exposing to the right, which you have drilled into me from the time that we have met. Now I have to shake that aspect because post-processing is not permitted. So back to the drawing board with this we go. What is your anticipation that people who have done this uh, should do to evaluate stuff after this exercise? Well, you're correct that exposing to the right is a technique that works extremely well in digital imaging where we intentionally overexpose at time of capture knowing we're going to have to edit after the fact. Mm -hmm. In this exercise, you don't have that luxury. Right. So you're going to make your best metering decision for the scene as is because you know you're not going to be able to post-process. I don't know that we have to forget everything about ETTR, but we do go in consciously knowing, yeah, we're not using it today. Right. Now, what the folks do is they're going to, if they're committed to their own creativity, they're going to assess their work personally. They're going to have an honest conversation with themselves. Please don't argue and definitely don't lose the <laughs> argument. But honestly look at it and say, yeah, that was worth taking, or no, that wasn't. Or perhaps you may say, well, I took it, but I wasn't thinking about what I was capturing, and I see now that I might be able to make this better, but only if I post-process it a lot. 
these are just factual results. But that's part of the process, not only to see before you make the shot, but to intentionally, actively see what's happened after you've done it. Now, the key thing is here, don't go around asking for generic opinions because you're going to get uninformed opinions back and they're going to be as useless as memories on a male cow. Never heard that one before, but okay, well, sure, clean, we'll go with that. I'm trying to clean things up. <laughs> now, if you have a photographer friend who can do a proper critique without being critical or trying to impart their way of doing things, that can be really beneficial. Some folks have found that this exercise works well working as a team, a couple of people. And if anyone you know, doesn't have that option and they would like some proper critique feedback, they can email the JPEG of their best image to us and we'll communicate with them privately. We're not going to post it anywhere. We're not going to share your work, but we'll give you feedback if you ask for it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, well, that's okay. Well, that sounds pretty comprehensive. Uh, and of course, going through this, I'm uh, sitting here and saying, I wonder how I can implement this with the camera club. But what you've asked us to do then, just to reiterate, is one camera, one focal length, one location, 36 frames, and no sophisticated post-processing. Well, I hope that our listeners are going to give this a try. And, I, and I, I'm sitting and thinking that I'd really like to see the members of our camera club give this a try. It sounds interesting and it sounds difficult. One question, though, since we know that there are those who try to game the system, what if someone were to shoot 100 images and then delete 64 of them in camera so that they had 36 and uh, uh, then present those as their achievement? Well, I did think of this because I know that some who may not even try will be looking to find ways to game it. They can do whatever they want. It's free country, mostly. But it's cheating. You're cheating yourself. And if someone wants to beat the challenge so badly, given the massive amount of prizes, that would be none. <laughs> They've gone to an awful lot of effort for no gain whatsoever. They cheat themselves, which strikes me as dumb. And I also think it offends their mothers, whether they're still alive or in spirit. Because I've never encountered a mother who said, I raised my child to be a low-down snake-in-the-grass cheater. Well, that's, um, that's a fairly, fairly strong indication, but uh, yeah, it probably fits. Well, fits for me. It doesn't make it right for everybody. No. <laughs> Anyhow, for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I want to thank everyone for listening. Please consider clicking to subscribe to the podcast and to the articles on the website to be notified when new content is available. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we will speak to you again next week.